Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Friday edition, the Good Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have two good martinis today, plus a bad or a crazy, depending on how you define it. It's going to sound a lot like a crazy we had from earlier in the week. But uh, Jim, let's start with our first good martini. And that is the fact that the Moskva, uh, the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, a guided missile cruiser, has sunk. The Russians actually admit this. They don't admit why it sank yet, but they do admit that it has sunk, which is critical. The Ukrainians, of course, claim uh, that they sank it with uh, missiles. Uh, The Russians just saying that uh, it was being towed and it sank. Uh, And uh, there are some reports that they are uh, attacking a facility in Kiev where uh, missiles are made that would do such an attack. So I think that the Russian spin is falling a little short here. Uh, In addition to the tactical significance of this, it seems to be a a significant morale boost for the Ukrainians and not so much for the Russians. Indeed. And you might, okay, you know, Russia lost a battleship, although I guess technically it's a cruiser. I just really wanted to use the line. You sank my battleship. But then you start looking at the details on this. And this really does seem to be a significant Uh, success for the Ukrainian military. The Russian explanation doesn't really make sense. In fact, the Ukrainians sank our battleship is actually a better explanation because otherwise the flagship of the Black Sea fleet can have a fire just spontaneously happen or, or through some sort of accident and it can be bad enough so that it has to be towed. And then the process of towing in bad weather that no meteorologist ever saw the ship can sink completely. Oh, by the way, there are no accounts of what happened to the crew. Uh, if it was a fire, you'd presumably have time to evacuate the crew. Um, There's up by the crew of like more than 500 people. Uh, you, you know, some survivors would presumably be coming, showing up at some point in Russian media. It's entirely possible that it they did not have many survivors at all. Um, and so you're talking about a major defeat. I was surprised to learn this is the only Russian warship that is apparently capable of carrying nuclear weapons, or at least that's according to the Moscow Times. Um, they are also a really key store place for the defensive weapons, air defense missiles, uh, and basically the kind of ship you would be using to coordinate a massive naval attack. This makes a, a operation against Odessa or any of those other coastal cities in the Black Sea much more difficult. Probably doesn't eliminate it completely, but it makes it much less likely we'll be seeing it anytime soon. Oh, by the way, Russia has an aircraft carrier, but it's still under repairs. Because, hey, why would you want an aircraft carrier when you're trying the largest military operation <laughs> in your country's history in the last couple of decades? Um, so really a, a potentially very significant defeat for the Russian military. The Ukrainians are high-fiving each other with good justification. Um, the only kind of you know bad aftertaste or, or kind of uh, a potential consequence of this is that this is getting... Uh, you know, the war is going very badly for Russia, which is something we generally want to see. But I do think this makes Putin more and more desperate. And he really wants to have a win by May when they celebrate their victory in World War II. You know, remember, this was supposed to only take a couple of days and they were supposed to knock over the entire country and take over Kiev very quickly. Clearly, that's not going to happen. But Putin really wants to have a victory ceremony by, you know, mid early to mid-May. What's he going to do? He doesn't have that victory yet. And just saying, oh, look, we took a bigger chunk of the Donbass or something like that really isn't going to do it for him. So I don't 
I certainly don't think he's likely to set off a nuke or something like that, or God forbid, use chemical weapons, something like that. But I do think that as he gets more and more desperate, the possibility of Putin doing something really drastic and really uh, unthinkable by our standards gets a little bit more likely. But by and large, when the you know the Ukrainians score a very big military victory against the Russians, it's a it's a good day for the rest of us. Yeah, VE Day is May 8th. That's uh, 23 days away, and they've been at this for nearly two months now. So that uh, major celebration over something in Ukraine seems unlikely, but maybe they'll just lie like they are about what's happening to the ship. So then they'll have a celebration anyway, uh, and then they'll figure it all out later. But uh, Jim, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear Moskva, which is really just Russian for Moscow, makes me, uh, from our generation, think of the uh, Scorpion song, Winds of Change. Remember uh, following Moskva down to Gorky Park with all the, uh, you know, the, the falling of the Iron Curtain and so forth? Maybe I'm just dating myself, but uh, that's that's always what comes to mind when I hear that in Russian. But uh, Yeah, uh, was, yeah we, we had so much optimism. The Cold War was over. <laughs> Russia was our friends. Oh, well. I think it was Gene Hackman in the beginning of uh, Crimson Tide, the, the probably the second best, you know, U.S. versus Russia so, submarine movie next to Hunt for Red October, where at some point in the early beginning is, well, you can put aside all that peace crap because the Cold War is back on. <laughs> And I was imagining some scenario of Russian ultranationalists getting control of part of their arsenal. And uh, yeah, yeah, look, it turned out to be kind of prophetic. There we go. Wow. I wouldn't mind Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington at the Pentagon right now. Honestly. Yeah, they do. They'd be kind of reassuring. <laughs> I mean, he's not Fred Thompson, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about something else that's good. And that's the fantastic deal you can get on the six-piece towel set from my pillow. You know how much I love these towels. Used them again this morning. Love the hand towel, too. Not just the bath towel and the washcloth is great. Uh, soft, fluffy. They get the job done and uh, they get you dry super, super quick. Right now, the six-piece towel set, usually $109.99, only $39.99 a set. Dear listeners, have you heard me mention that the MyPillow six-piece towel set is made with cotton grown right here in the United States? Now, other towels might feel good, but they don't absorb very well. Or maybe they absorb, but they don't feel good on your skin. They've got that lotion-y feel. Well, every MyPillow towel is made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. For a limited time, get the MyPillow six-piece towel set, regularly $109.99 for only $39.99 with the promo code MARTINI. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. You'll also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow Giza Dream Sheets, and so much more. Get your six-piece MyPillow towel set for only $39.99 today at MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. MyPillow.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini. And for this one, we're going to have to hop into the Wayback Machine all the way back to September of last year. Uh, there was a completely manufactured scandal against the U.S. Uh, Border Patrol when there was this uh, sudden flush of Haitian immigrants at the uh, Texas-Mexico border. And so uh, for part of the response, the Border Patrol sent out uh, agents mounted on horseback. And there was this uh, one image in particular 
where a uh, agent was reaching over to uh, grab uh, one of the migrants by the back of the shirt, and uh, some of the reins came flying up uh, from the horse, and somehow all these lefties, who of course are expert horsemen, uh, decided that the Border Patrol was whipping uh, migrants at the border, and it was this, uh, you know, scandal. Mayorkas was uh, the DHS secretary, still is, unfortunately, came out against his own agents, and then Biden on TV at a press conference said this: "To see people treated like they did, horses barely running them over, people being strapped, it's outrageous. I promise you, those people will pay. They will be an investigation underway now, and there will be consequences." Jim, we've known for a long time, thanks to the uh, other angles of that shot, that there was no whipping involved. There was no whip in hand. It was a rain, like we said. Uh, So this was a completely manufactured demonizing of the Border Patrol. The report had to have been done pretty quickly, exonerating these agents, but they let it linger, let it linger, let it linger. Now it's official. Uh, They've been exonerated, but of course, they're not making a big deal out of it, so plenty of people won't ever know. The good news is it's finally out, and it's true that these border agents did their job honorably. Yeah, this is not necessarily the biggest and most consequential story of any time period, um, nor is it uh, really all that shocking at all. It's been obviously pretty much within a day or two it was clear the photographer said they weren't whipping them. This was, you know, entirely a case of somebody not knowing what was going on, looking at one image and starting up this insane, incendiary, hyperbolic narrative of, you know, with scenes reminiscent of the old Confederacy and slavery. And, you know. and what I do think it illuminates is this, the, the kind of the instincts and the habits of this administration. Um, this happened not too long after the Afghanistan and I believe Biden had said something that was kind of along the lines of the way he'd responded to the terrorist attack at Kabul International Airport, where he said, you know, we will not forget. We will we will come down and we, we will, you know, we will deal with you and all that kind of stuff. And of course, everybody's like, no, no, this was uh, not the case at all. Why He was, you know, Biden, instead of pouring cold water on it or slowing things down, calming people down, trying to bring people to say, hold on, we're going to get to the truth of this. He jumped on the bandwagon and tried to get people whipped up and, you know, no pun intended, uh, into, into anger and frenzy and, and, and all that kind of stuff. A long time ago, a very smart uh, political consultant who'd worked on a lot of campaigns, not Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, my old source, <laughs> had said to me that, um, you know, I was asking about a candidate and I was like, how do you, how do you change the perception that this candidate is something of a dim bulb. And uh, the consultant said, look, you change the perception of something by changing the reality of something. Once a perception is out there, it is very, very hard to change. And this is an administration that spends a lot of time trying to change the perception of things instead of trying to change the reality of things. Instead of trying to actually change what's going on with inflation and admitting, yes, we, we spent way too much money at the beginning of this administration. We threw out a whole bunch of spending money on people without enough goods to follow it. You know, too much money, too few goods, you end up with inflation. The administration really wants you to believe that it's Putin inflation and it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. It's, you know, did uh, the invasion of Ukraine exacerbate the rise in fuel prices? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'll give them that, but it's not the decisive factor. Gas prices were really high well before the invasion of Ukraine. In fact, going back to last fall, uh, today's morning jolt, I noted that he, you know, back in October, November, Biden was talking about high gas prices. Um, they're constantly trying to spin you. They're constantly trying to fool you into believing. You know, high inflation is a high-class problem, Greg. 
it very rarely works, particularly on something that people can feel, right? You know, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a roaring success. You know, you know they keep doing this, and it, it it never works. This was another it, the when people look at the border, the problem that really got most Americans fired. Like, wow, we we have no idea who these people are. Border Patrol is saying they can barely keep up. They're catching more than they've ever caught before, but God knows how many are getting through. We have an insecure border. The secure border was one of the few things we liked about the Trump administration, or at least you know, a whole bunch of people did. Instead, the ad is like, no, no, we're really going to crack down on Border Patrol agents whipping those Asians, when in fact they weren't. They go chasing the false problem, the problem that doesn't exist, instead of addressing the real problem. And then they wonder, why is President Biden's approval rating in the 30s? You cannot change Americans' perceptions of their problems until you actually change what's being done for the problems, and ideally, you solve the problems, or at least mitigate them some. This is an administration that really believe, basically wants to win a news cycle instead of actually uh, winning the year, winning the problem, winning the actual problem. And you know, every time you talk to them, like, well, why are you in trouble? Well, we're not communicating. Well, no, no, it's not a communications problem. But they never want, they don't want to believe it because that would mean they'd have to admit they're pursuing the wrong policies. Well, they definitely have the wrong policies on issue after issue after issue, but their messaging does assume in many cases that the American people either have the shortest memories on the planet or they're really dumb. I mean, uh, do you think people don't remember that gas prices weren't a lot higher before February, like you were talking about? Uh, or, you know, this is exactly what we expected to happen in Afghanistan? I mean, or the border? I mean, it doesn't matter what the issue is. Uh, they're, they're really setting the common denominator for what they think the American people know, remember, and understand uh, at an insulting level. And the American people don't like that. And that's why his numbers stink as much as they do. Yeah, Greg, there are really two terrible scenarios. The one really terrible scenario is that the Biden administration is putting off a spin and an explanation and a narrative that they themselves don't even believe. The other even worse scenario is that they're putting forth a narrative that they actually believe. <laughs> Well, if they believed it so much, it wouldn't change as much as it does. They're just trying to throw stuff against the wall at this point. But uh, anyway, it's not working. It's not working at all, at least as you look at his poll numbers and the projections for the midterms. All right, on to our final Crazy Martini of the Week. And Jim, it was just a couple of days ago, we were talking about the Hawaii congressman, Congressman Kahele, who has not been in person for a vote on Capitol Hill since January. Well, hold my Mai Tai is uh, what uh, Florida Democrat Al Lawson is saying. He represents Florida's 5th Congressional District, has re represented that since 2017, Jacksonville area, has not voted in person for the past year and a half because of the coronavirus pandemic. In 2021, he cast 435 proxy votes, missed three altogether, and this year he's only voted uh, by proxy so far. His district office in Jacksonville also remains closed, quote, out of an abundance of caution, according to images obtained this week by the Washington Free Beacon, which uh, has the story. Uh, but there's a silver lining here also for the Republicans. The longtime Florida lawmaker has won each of his three congressional elections by more than 30 percentage points. But that could change if Ron DeSantis uh, gets his way on a new uh, congressional district map that slices Lawson's constituency in half uh, and could potentially uh, put him at risk in uh, in holding that seat. So, uh, Jim, we thought uh, we thought three months and change was, <laughs> you know, mailing it in. Uh, but at least he had the excuse of being, you know, a long way away. Jacksonville to D.C., not a long flight. And he hasn't been there for a year and a half. Greg, is his Florida office closed out of an abundance of caution because of a fear of alligators or something? <laughs> 
mosquito because because COVID nineteen people both of us have moved on. We, we we've done it. Yeah, we've often had it. We've been vaccinated. We've been boosted. Life has moved up, and there's this guy who's just decided, no, no, the pandemic's going to continue forever. I'm never going back into the office. Um, this, by the way, I think really opens que tarred questions about whether proxy voting should be continued. It is very understandable that during the peak of the pandemic, uh, the House and uh, did not want necessarily want to have everybody in the same place at the same time. We've already had a couple events in D.C., including I think it was the, the Gridiron Dinner a few weeks ago, where Lots and lots of folks ended up getting uh, infected because they were in close proximity. I think it's now very clear that if you give members of Congress the ability to vote remotely, uh, they will abuse that privilege and choose to just stop coming in and doing their work. The other thing I'm kind of struck by is, you know, remember when, you know, uh, the, the uh, supply chain issues got really, really bad and everybody kind of said, hey, you know, we haven't heard much from Pete Buttigieg in a while. Uh, what's going on? And oh, he's been out of the office for two months uh, on paternity leave. I think all of us fathers would say, hey, it's really great to spend time with your newborn child and with your uh, wife. Uh, you know what? You know, these these are crucial moments. You don't get to get him back again. None of us have a begrudge a guy taking some paternity leave. Uh, but that's not what was going on in this case. And he was two months. And oh, by the way, the Department of Transportation was trying to deal with this ever-increasing backlog of ships at these ports out of the Pacific Ocean. A lot of people complained about it. And of course, you know, Buttigieg responded. But, you know, everybody who, who was complaining was against him and his partner and paternity leave and stuff like that. Instead of addressing the issue of like, hey, you wanted this job, right? You know, you, you've only been in the job for a year. Why are you taking multiple months off? This sort of thing. So that argument had come along. Do people in Washington want to do their jobs, Greg? They spend a lot of time trying to get them. Spend a lot of time campaigning, a lot of time, you know, telling us I am the right person. I need you need me in that office. You need me on that wall. And they don't end up doing it. <laughs> they, you know, they literally don't want to show up in the office. So the other thing I'm also the third thing that's kind of fascinating. Now I don't cover Congress nearly extensive as I used to. Uh, I spent two years at Congressional Quarterly, one year being the House Floor Votes reporter. So I knew the I knew the names of everybody. I could recognize everybody. I'm not that guy anymore. But Greg, had you heard of this congressman before? Never. Okay, neither had I. And he's been there a while. And I'm kind of, he hasn't been on Capitol Hill in a while. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm kind of struck by the fact. Wait, how are these people who've been in their jobs for a while, and I, a person who follows the news and the news about politics fairly closely, don't even recognize the name? But anyway, so it's one of those things where um, there are workhorses, there are show horses, and then apparently there are invisible missing horses. <laughs> well, he's obviously not had any competitive races. That may change soon, but that might be another reason, uh, you know, uh, some people are not front and center when you know you uh, are pretty much guaranteed a cakewalk to reelection. Uh, sometimes the work ethic tends to wane a little bit. So, but you can't even keep the district office open. What exactly are you doing other than uh, literally mailing in your vote? Reminded of office space. So what is it you'd say you do here? <laughs> he has people skills. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, he doesn't interact with people, but he has people skills. <laughs> he has theoretical people skills that are never tested in practice. Yeah. I'm sure there's an explanation, Jim. I'm sure we're just jumping to conclusions. 
That's another office space joke. Anyway, Jim, have a great, have a great uh, Easter weekend. A happy Easter to you and yours and all of our listeners. And we'll uh, see you again on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews, so please keep those coming. Also, uh, don't forget you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Once again, have a wonderful Easter weekend, everyone, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour, because it really seemed to be heading in that direction from the 2012 autopsy on down, it really seemed like the trajectory was to kind of be bulldozed by all of these priorities of the cultural left. And um, without, I guess, the, the cultural strife of the last several years, and maybe even 2020, maybe this doesn't even have anything to do with Trump, but it has to do with the excesses that bubbled to the surface of our discourse in 2020 in very violent ways. Um, I really think this is where the Republican Party was going. And I feel like a lot of Republican governors would have looked more like Spencer Cox. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.